welcome to Making Therapy Better, the podcast that brings together some of the top minds in psychotherapy as well as everyday clinicians to talk about where the field is headed and how we can achieve better mental health care for everyone. Making Therapy Better is hosted by Professor Bruce Wampold, who has dedicated his career to understanding how therapy works and advocating evidence-based methods for improving outcomes. His guest today is Catherine Eubanks, Ph.D., Catherine is co-director of the Center for Alliance-Focused Training and professor of clinical psychology at Adelphi University. She's a fellow of the American Psychological Association and received the Outstanding Early Career Achievement Award from the Society for Psychotherapy Research in 2015. Dr. Eubanks helped to develop the Rupture Resolution Rating System and is co-author of Therapist Performance Under Pressure, Negotiating Emotion, Difference, and Rupture. She also recently released Rupture and Repair in Psychotherapy as part of the APA video series. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths has been helping in-person and virtual therapy practices thrive for over 20 years with their complete web-based EHR and practice management platform. As mental health care evolves, CarePaths is leading the way in making measurement-based care easy and cost-effective for therapists. Visit carepaths.com to sign up for a free trial today. And now, without further ado, Episode 11 of Making Therapy Better, Alliance Rupture and Repair with Katherine Eubanks, Ph.D. Catherine, this is a great opportunity to talk to you for an hour about alliance ruptures and repairs. So we have lots of material, so we're going to jump right in. And I know you've done work in this area with Chris Moran and with our uh, uh, colleague uh, who passed away recently, Jeremy Safran. And the three of you really are responsible for developing this area. So let's jump in and ask you, what is a, a, a alliance rupture and why is it important to repair those ruptures? What evidence is there and what clinical kinds of uh, insights mm-hmm. do you have about them? So we'll start at the broadest level. Yeah, possible. sure. So great. So I think one useful place to start is with Ed Borden's conceptualization of what the alliance is. So if we think of the alliance as patient and therapist are agreeing on the goals they're working toward, they're able to collaborate on tasks toward those goals, they have a bond of mutual trust and respect, then we could think of as a rupture as a problem in any of those areas. Mm -hmm. Maybe we disagree on the goals, maybe we're having difficulty collaborating on the tasks, maybe we don't have a bond or there's a strain in the bond. So that's one way of thinking about what a, a rupture could be. And also think about it as, um, and, and I guess I should add, like we also pay attention to subtle indications that there may be a rupture. So the word rupture sounds like a really big dramatic thing. And certainly right. it can include Something that. that. That's obvious to everybody. Right. But I think both for research to understand the phenomenon and and as a clinician to be able to intervene effectively before everything blows up. We have to attend to like slight misattunements, slight disagreements, slight Mm -hmm. indications that maybe we're not quite on the same page. So I'm going to use the term rupture marker to talk about those very subtle things as well Mm -hmm. as the big things. Um, And we can think of those Subtle things is things that are going to inevitably arise when two human beings are interacting. 
patient and therapist are bringing different experiences, different needs for agency, for communion. I want to assert myself, but I also want to connect with someone. Mm. And those are going to inevitably bump up against each other. So that can also be a way of thinking about the ruptures is what, how we describe when those things kind of collide or clash or intersect. Um, so repairing those is important, um, both in terms of if something's getting in the way of us working together, we need to address that so we can work together. So we kind of need to address that obstacle. But they can also provide an opportunity. So I may get a better sense of what my patient needs from the way the rupture is unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's coming out of their need colliding with my need. Um, and it may be an opportunity for a corrective experience. Mm-hmm. We can navigate this conflict in a way that might be different from how they navigate conflict in their other relationships. Uh, you know, instead of counterattacking, defending myself, running away from it. If we can kind of collaborate to look at it together with curiosity, non-defensiveness, openness, that can be powerful in its own right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so far, you're, yeah. You're really saying there's two ways this works. One is uh, we got to get back on this collaboration so we can do the work that we need to do for the patient to reach their goals or make progress. And the other is, it's a corrective experience. They may not actually have people that in their social uh, uh, relations who actually can do this in an effective way. So it's a new experience for them. Hey, somebody stuck with me, even though I was pretty nasty just now. Right, right. And... And I think that when we look at the growing body of research on rupture repair, so there's there's research showing that if a rupture is not repaired, it can correspond with poor outcome, premature dropout from therapy. Yeah. If a rupture is repaired, that predicts better retention in therapy, better outcome. And then there's really provocative findings like a study Bill Stiles and colleagues did where in their study, patients who had a rupture that was repaired had better outcome than patients who didn't report any ruptures at all. Mm-hmm. Which might point to that, you know, is it providing a corrective experience or some other therapeutic benefit above and beyond just kind of fixing whatever was wrong? Yeah. So, uh, Catherine, two things there. So one is, I think we we just have to be clear. There's very convincing research that repairing the ruptures when they occur results in better therapy and reduce dropout. And we know a uh, dropout often happens when uh, the patient feels like this person isn't working in my best interest or we're not on the same page. But what I find curious, uh, the Bill Stiles study is, are you saying that some therapy will go on without any ruptures? Is that possible? So this is where it all gets into depends on what you mean by a rupture mm-hmm. and how you're measuring it. Yeah. So good, good. in that study, patients were reporting alliance scores and Styles and colleagues came up with a way, you know, when the alliance scores drop this much and come back up that much, we're saying the drop's a rupture, coming back up is a repair. And so there were patients in the study who just said the alliance was good the whole time. Mm. That could mean the alliance was good the whole time. It could mean that's how the patient 
they felt it was good compared to other relationships they have. Um, I do worry sometimes with self-report, patients might feel pressure to say it was good or might think um, it's not safe to say it wasn't good or like, I like my mm -hmm. therapist, I don't want them to get in trouble. And, yeah. and so this kind of thinking is why I think it's really important to have multiple ways of understanding and identifying ruptures. We need the mm. client's perspective, the therapist's perspective, observers watching the video and kind of try to triangulate all these things because it's stuff mm. that can be very hard to identify and might be hard for people to feel comfortable reporting. Yeah. Well, let's get into this um, discussion about uh, noticing ruptures. Uh, and you mentioned, well, the, the, Client, the therapists, and observers all are looking at something from a little bit different perspective. And I think it's important to talk about this because, you know, in the style study, we're looking at changes in reported scores. That really doesn't help the clinician identify when there is a rupture. So if the score for a particular session was, was lower than usual, what happened in that session? And you've done a lot of work. And I think this is important both for understanding the research, but so critical to helping therapists uh, uh, be able to recognize when there is rupture. Yeah. So this is a lot of my research has been about trying to develop and validate an observer-based measure of ruptures, the rupture resolution rating system or 3RS. And and with this, we try to define, you know, if you see this kind of behavior, if you see that kind of behavior, then that might mean a rupture is happening. And, and originally we started with patient behaviors that could indicate rupture and then therapist efforts to repair. We've recently revised the measure to fit better how we really conceptualize it. It's a dyadic thing. Both people are involved in what's going on. Mm -hmm. So with the revised measure now, we're looking at both patient and therapist markers of rupture and patient and mm -hmm. therapist efforts to repair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, uh, dig a little deeper in the, mm -hmm. in the, the actual event that could be classified as a rupture. Um, you've written about two different kinds of ruptures, the uh, challenging patient and the withdrawing patient. So let's, let's talk about, those two kinds of ruptures and the signs that they've occurred, the markers. So this way of kind of describing it, um, first developed by Heather Harper and then Chris and Jeremy and I have built on it. Um, and it's a way of, uh, you know, it's not set in stone. So we're not arguing that it is perfect, but it, it's a useful way of kind of thinking about when the patient therapists are not on the same page, perhaps maybe there's some kind of strain, are they confronting, sort of colliding, clashing? That could be one is criticizing the other, one is pushing back against, you know, rejecting the other's ideas or trying to control or pressure the other, or are they moving away from each other and away from the work? So am I trying to shut down the work by going silent, giving a very minimal answer to a question, Am I trying to avoid something by changing the topic, telling mm -hmm. a tangential story, talking in a really abstract, intellectualized way that kind of avoids what we're really talking about? Or am I trying to sort of mask, maybe I'm not really happy with what's going on, but I'm not comfortable sharing that. So I'm kind of 
being deferential, trying to appease the other person, maybe smiling when I really feel unhappy, upset, frustrated. These could all be um, different markers of confrontation and withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is a conversation maybe we started when we were talking with George a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But the the withdrawal, particularly, might be or has been attributed, and I often attribute it to, maybe there's resistance to change. Change is scary. Um, I want things to be different, but I don't want to give up. Uh, if we're talking about it in a psychodynamic sense, I don't want to give up my defenses. They mm-hmm. were pretty well most of the time. Mm-hmm. Or it could be personality. My personality is, you know, a, a little bit antisocial. So when I get anxious, I I uh, lash out. How do you differentiate kind of the normal therapy processes from uh, uh, what's a rupture? So when I'm, if I see these things and describe them as possibly markers of rupture, of withdrawal, of confrontation, I'm not necessarily assuming I know the cause. Mm-hmm. I'm just describing what I see. Yeah. And it's yeah. happening in the relationship and it's going to impact the relationship. So mm-hmm. if, if my patient's moving away, I don't know why they're moving away. They might be moving away because I said something that hurt them or offended them. They might be moving away because they move away from everybody. Mm. Who knows? But I need, as a therapist, I need to be attentive to that move away. Mm. And I think what's helpful about framing it as possibly something in the alliance is then I think that helps me be open to the possibility that I'm contributing to it. Mm. Helps me take responsibility for that if I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and helps me kind of frame it as like, this is a we thing. This is us. This is happening with us, mm-hmm. as opposed to you, patient, are doing this bad thing that could, you know, and I could end up being critical. The patient could end up feeling criticized and 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 then feel the need to defend themselves. But if I frame it more as, huh, this thing's happening with us. Let's look at it together. Let's be curious about it together. I think that's a helpful way to start that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. 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 So we're getting into the area of responding to the to the markers of ruptures. So let's uh okay and I noticed this withdrawal that when we talk about um relationships uh with intimate dating partners um you, you kind of withdrawn it's a difficult mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. and it is a hypothesis I don't know if I introduce this in a way that's facilitated or maybe that's just how you generally react so what are the ways to address these ruptures so we talk about kind of three different approaches you could take so one is just continue being empathic, validating, you know, paying attention to the the patient, being supportive. It may be that if you just keep doing that, if the patient was uncomfortable, they might get more comfortable. And and that may be sufficient. You may not need to necessarily, you know, label it explicitly as a rupture and talk about it explicitly. 
Mm-hmm. That's one pathway. Another pathway would be to think about it in terms of like, do we need to renegotiate our tasks or goals? So are you withdrawing because it's actually no longer your goal to talk about these relationships? You want to talk about something else. You're frustrated with me that that I keep harping on this thing and we need to have a conversation about what are we working toward here? What are we going to do in our sessions? And maybe, maybe we need to readjust that or revisit that. Mm-hmm. Then there's the third pathway that we describe as like the expressive or exploratory pathway where we really go into exploring the movement away or movement against and really make that the focus. And and I might meta-communicate or you know, sort of talk about, observe what's happening between us. Mm. I might share my experience. I, I, I have this sense that you're moving away and I'm trying to chase you or whatever my experience mm. is. Invite the patient to share theirs and really explore that. We know that these pathways are useful, and and Chris and Jeremy did a series of task analyses of the expressive pathway, uh, showing that um, sort of following the expressive pathway with sequential analyses, they showed that it it contributed to repair. We've also done a more recent task analysis starting to look at the renegotiation pathway. Mm -hmm. But I think what we still don't have evidence for to give therapists really clear guidance is on when to choose which one. I think mm-hmm. that's something we need to do more research on. I, I think so far, you know, in my own work, I'm sort of intuitively making a call about mm-hmm. which way to go. But any path I pick, it's important that I pay attention to how it's going because I can immediately, right, get feedback from the patient. Are they going with me? Is this not working? Do I need to readjust? So I can, you know, try one pathway and shift to another if if one's not working. Mm-hmm. So, Catherine, the, uh, this is interesting because when you talk about kind of the meta communication or addressing the relationship, sounds uh, more like therapy I learned, psychodynamic therapy or interpersonal therapy. Uh, whereas I think about training in CBT, you would be more focused on on the agreement on tasks and goals. So is there a difference in theoretical approaches in how we might repair these ruptures? Maybe repair, I don't know, that's the word that's often used, but it's it's addressing at least right. the ruptures. Is there, a, are there theoretical differences in how you might do this? I suspect that you're right and that uh, people coming from a CBT orientation might be more comfortable with focusing on the tasks and goals that that's going to feel more congruent to how they think about the work. Uh, people coming from a more, you know, relational psychodynamic perspective might feel more comfortable with the expressive pathway. Um, and, and there may be other, you know, other orientations may also kind of fall into what feels most comfortable to them. Um And I guess, I mean, it is important. The therapist has, I think the therapist needs to be able to do this in a way that's genuine. So I do think if if a therapist is more comfortable with one approach and and they use that approach and it seems to be working for them to address ruptures, then great, because then they can do that genuinely. Um, I think it's an interesting question and and we need to do a lot more coding of a lot more sessions to see, you know, what's best and, and are some of these happening where you don't expect them, but they're not labeled that way. So we don't realize 
maybe there's uh, some CBT folks doing a lot of exploring the rupture, and maybe there's some psychodynamic folks doing a lot of renegotiating mm -hmm. the task, but we're not going to know that unless we kind of get in there and see the sessions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you talked about uh, uh, genuineness and do what you're most comfortable with. And I was kind of hoping, I guess, to say, well, we need to push CBT people to be more present in the, the here and now. And maybe for the psychodynamic interpersonal therapists, it actually would be pushing them to be more task oriented. Uh, so I always like to think about it uh, kind of a zone of proximal development. Let's try something that is a little uncomfortable, at least to think about expanding our repertoire. I, I'm totally on board with that too. I guess I'm trying to balance Maybe it's it's like you said, it's the zone of proximal development. So making sure it's within that zone, it's not too out of that zone. Um, and might be also helpful for people to encounter these opportunities maybe earlier, like while they're still in training or early in their career, where it might be easier to experiment with different approaches. Certainly with the the students I provide alliance-focused training to, I tell them, like, this is your chance to experiment with this approach, yeah. even if it's uncomfortable, yeah. like take a risk yeah. and do it so you get a sense of, of what it's like. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like that because what we learn in training as a therapist, we carry on, get a little discouraged when we think about therapists not being able to learn after they're, they're in practice. But yeah. I don't want to say they can't, but maybe it gets yeah, well, that's harder. True. Yeah, it is yeah. harder. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, I've got so many things on my mind because it's such an interesting topic. So one of the really frequent, uh, uh, ruptures is the patient that comes in and the therapist says, well, you know, we had this homework assignment for you to do or, or this activity for you to do. Some people don't like the word homework exactly, but I asked you to do something during this week that's important. And you came back and reported, well, I was busy. I didn't get a time to do it. So uh, that sounds like disagreement about mm -hmm. task because that's a task mm -hmm. so how might you address failure or reluctance to do assigned tasks during the week well there's a lot to be curious about there right so many things could have happened um on the patient side it's possible um that they when they agreed to do the task, they didn't really agree. And, and so maybe they had some concerns or reservations they didn't share with me. And, and we need to explore that. Or they didn't totally understand the task. Maybe I didn't mm -hmm. explain it clearly enough. Yeah. Maybe I didn't give a good rationale for it. Mm -hmm. um, did we explore enough the potential obstacles to doing the task? Mm -hmm. And then maybe those we didn't, and then the obstacles came up. Do we need to consider changing the task? Maybe the task wasn't a good fit. Or was mm -hmm. it realistic? Um, so really, I, th I think the key would be to be open to exploring 
what happened and, and, mm. and not in a, you didn't do what I told you to do <laughs> way, yeah. but if but you want to get better, you better do this homework. Right. Yeah. Right. So not like scolding or chastising, but, but being curious and open to the possibility that, you know, I contributed to the fact that you didn't do the task through not explaining it, choosing the wrong task, something. Mm. Um, I think that can be a big one. It, it, especially, you know, if we're assigning a homework, like at the end of the session, and we're kind of in a hurry, and we know exactly what we mean, because we've thought about this and seen this a 1000 times. So it might be the first time the patient's ever heard of it. And we just mm -hmm. might be not very clear what we're asking mm -hmm. for. Could be more fundamental that this patient doesn't really think the treatment you're offering really is going to be helpful. Yeah. And why, why should I do homework? Because uh, I don't even believe this treatment is going to help. Right. And ambivalence. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, if, if the person, if the change was easy to make, they would have already made it. So it may right. be that, you know, part of me wants to change, part of me is afraid of the change. And then there's more to be explored there before jumping to here, do this new thing. You know, part of this conversation reminds me of the conversation I had with uh, Bill Miller and Terry Moyers around curiosity. You have to be curious about what's really going on. And you just have a little bit of evidence and you have to make some inference about what's going on and see what happens with that. Be curious about uh, whether that's really what's going on or not. Absolutely. I think um, our, our training as scientists, we can bring into the therapy room. Like we're always sort of developing hypotheses. We're, we're trying to test them. We're trying to see what the evidence is for and against. Uh, you've written about that, how it's important to think about that way and not just look for confirming evidence, mm -hmm. but also be yeah. open to evidence that we, yeah. we, can't, we yeah. don't quite have it right. Yeah. Confirmation bias, exactly. Uh, you know, one of the heuristics that won Daniel Kahneman the Nobel Prize uh, is around this idea that we're really, it's not just therapists, all of us look for confirming evidence. So let's go back to this uh, um, patient who didn't do the homework. Um, and I'm thinking back to George Silvershantz and the interview I had with him, plus the, the discussion we had at, at his training a few weeks ago. And he's saying context is so important. If this were a patient who's kind of uh, perfectionistic, not doing the homework might actually be a success. And you might have to really talk about that mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You always do everything and spend so much time doing it. And here you felt like there were more important things in your life. And it wasn't the end of the world that you didn't do the homework for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so what it what it means definitely, I think, has to be considered in the context of, of that patient and how you've been working with that patient. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, the strong message is we can't let these markers go unaddressed, at least uh, 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 in a few moments or sometime in the session. I mean, we may decide, 
well, I saw the marker, but we got to finish what we're working on here, but we're going to come back to it at some Absolutely. point. And, and because we can um, kind of focus, it's possible to focus on it too much and like kind of be the patient feel like we're going after them, harping on on every little thing they do. And that't not going to be helpful yeah, can, either. Can we, can we get to work? We're always right. discussing our relationship. I just want to do something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Countertransference. So sometimes uh, we make uh, therapeutic errors due to our countertransference. How does that play into the rupture repair endeavor? So I think that certainly that can be part of what we as therapists are bringing to the situation, right? Like why um, why we might miss something or why we might overstep or why we might be, we might be the ones sort of engaging in confrontational behaviors or withdrawal behaviors because of our own our own things that we bring to the the table. Um, and I think that also, you know, hopefully we're, we're trying to model what we're also trying to do with our patients. So that same kind of open, curious, non-defensive, compassionate stance we should bring to ourselves when reflecting on that, maybe in supervision, sort of like, why was I getting tangled up in knots in this moment in the session? Oh, cause this reminded me of this. It brought in my issues with that. And, and sort of being aware, okay, that was going on with me. Um, but also, I guess, yeah, always, but always still in that dyadic frame. So it's going to be, it's probably going to be that, you know, there's something about this moment with this patient that brought that stuff up, right? It's, it's both mm-hmm. of us are kind of bringing something to the dance. Mm-hmm. Well, we really... I want to come back to the point you talked about earlier, and that is uh, the best time to uh, practice and learn uh, uh, how to do this, both to recognize the markers and then to address the rupture is while you're in training. And I know you spend a lot of time on this idea of uh, uh, alliance rupture training. Mm-hmm. So, Let's talk about training. So mm-hmm. what's involved in, in the training program you do? Sure. So um, to date, we've been doing this with advanced trainees. And uh, we start out with some didactics. So teaching them about these ideas about rupture um, and trying to bring not only uh, sort of teaching them, okay, here are the types of behaviors you might be looking for, for withdrawal and confrontation. And also you want to be paying attention to your own internal experience because it might be you first realize there's a withdrawal because you realize you're bored in the session, or Mm -hmm. you first realize there's a confrontation because you're feeling really frustrated or or stressed. So having that idea of how to look for those markers of rupture, but within this context of ruptures are kind of a natural part of therapy so that therapists aren't beating themselves up too much and are are able to bring that kind of non-defensive curiosity to it. So we start out with didactics to kind of set that frame. And then we do group supervision where uh, each week the trainees bring video clips from their sessions with their patients. We ask them to bring the moments of rupture, bring the tough parts, not the parts you want to show off to the group. What a great job you did. Bring the parts that make you cringe. 
and and we'll look at that together. We'll try to focus on what your experience was as a therapist, what experiences it's bringing up for the the group. Is everybody feeling on edge when they see this patient or people having different reactions? And then do role plays to try to, we call them awareness-oriented role plays because we're not just, we may end up practicing something you can then take into the session, but it's more if you play with, what if I said this, what if I said that, it helps you become more aware of what was happening. And then that awareness you can take into your next session to be better able to recognize and intervene mm. when the rupture stuff happens. And, and we also incorporate mindfulness exercises to try to encourage this awareness, but like a non-judgmental, open mm. kind of awareness. Mm-hmm. So focusing on awareness um, in the role plays. Uh, and, and we started this discussion a little bit mm-hmm. uh, with George as well. Um, uh, let's talk about this idea of skill deficit versus performance uh, deficit, because here you're kind of more on the performance deficit. Uh, uh, Well, what's going on with me internally? Why did I miss this? Mm -hmm. Uh, What stops me from responding in a particular way? Right. Another way to think of it is there's a skill involved in uh, addressing it. Maybe I need just to practice the skill in the deliberate practice mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. So talk about uh, deficit versus performance or skill deficit versus uh, performance deficit. I, I do think our alliance-focused training does also provide opportunities to practice the skill because when you when we uh, do the role plays, you are practicing the skill. You know, we might say like, well, what would happen if you medicommunicated to your patient? Let's play that out. And so someone's both getting the chance to practice doing that and getting feedback from the group and, and from the supervisor, as well as becoming more aware of what's going on. But to your point, since these are more advanced trainees, they often come in with a lot of skills already. And I do think that, there's there's definitely room for, you know, what kind of skills training might be helpful, especially maybe with less experienced trainees um, and, and chances to just practice doing something maybe you've never done before and practice kind of thinking about something in a different way. I mean, I think about some really impactful training I had early on in, in empathic reflection and what was really powerful to me was, was sort of new ideas about it, about how powerful and helpful it can be to be with somebody, not trying to reassure them, not trying to change something, but just be with them. Mm-hmm. There are times for advice, there are times for reassurance, but but there are times when being with somebody is, is maybe the most therapeutic thing you can do. And, and I just needed somebody to kind of give me that idea. And then I could sort of absorb that. And then I could start practicing doing that because I like the rationale made sense to me yeah so in the role play you could actually get both types of feedback you could get well what were you feeling when you said that well what what stopped you from responding in this way or you know you said that but it took oh six seven sentences Mm -hmm. You could do it much more succinctly. Let's try it again. 
and direct yes. in three cents. So then both the kind of performance and skill type of feedback. And the group can be really helpful with this because it might be if, if a therapist is stuck and they in that moment seem not to be able to think of any other way to do it than what they did, maybe other people in the group can play the therapist. They can play their patient and then they can start to see, oh, there's this option and there's that option and there's this other option. Um, but I do think there's something, especially when somebody is nervous about trying something they've never tried before. I really want to get them to say the words out loud during the supervision. I think that's important. You, like, you need to have that experience of the words coming out of your mouth to know mm -hmm. that it's possible for those words to come out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. And then you can carry that maybe into your next session. Mm -hmm. So um, in the training, I'm wondering about training to recognize the markers as well. So if the student comes in, here's a difficult uh, situation, they've already identified that as a rupture. But I think there's plenty of times we miss the ruptures. Mm -hmm. So, uh, hey, I'm busy thinking about uh, uh, what this patient needs, trying to interpret the situation. And there's a lot going on in my mind, mm -hmm. and I just kind of ignored the rupture. So what about training and in, in recognizing the markers? How does that work? So, I mean, a couple of things. One thing that I've definitely experienced as a trainee and as a supervisor is someone brings in the clip and they say, okay, here's the problem at minute five, I did this thing and I think that didn't go well. They play the clip and we're all like, minute five was great. It's minute four, yeah. minute six, and we want to talk about. Yeah. So, so there is still space for there may be things people are missing that you know the group can kind of help to identify. Um, something that I'm starting to do a little bit in, in some contexts and want to maybe do more actively is bringing in the 3RS into the supervision more explicitly mm. to kind of teach the trainees not as uh, obsessively as I train my coders, but, you know, in kind of a, 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 a simplified way to have them practice identifying movements away and movement against in, in clips from their own sessions. Because mm. um, I think, I mean, my coders tell me that they see that as a helpful form of training, that they feel like they're better therapists yeah. Yeah. having that experience. So I want to kind of bring some more of that into the. Yeah, I'm surprised that it's it hasn't been a central part already because it seems like yeah if you can train coders to do this reliably and you're picking up something important because the research shows that that as therapists we need to learn that exactly so another aspect of the training is the coders get some standard tapes right they all code the same tape so uh, uh, you can kind of standardize it and mm -hmm. look at uh, agreement and so forth. But in the training, you're having uh, the trainees bring their own tapes. What about coding other tapes? I think there's definitely room for that. And we do in the, uh, the didactic portion, we'll show like demonstration mm -hmm. tapes yeah. and talk some, yeah. sort of help them recognize what's happening and here the therapist is trying to do this and that and the patient's doing this and that. Um, 
And I think, and that's also uh, something that it, they learn a lot from watching each other's tapes in the supervision. So when we're you know, doing supervision yeah. around yeah. one trainee, we're all in a way sort of coding the same tape together. And ruptures in the supervision. <laughs> yeah. There's, all, there's always the parallel process. Totally. And this is something I think is really important um, because I think it's important for us to practice what we preach. And, and it's important if there's ruptures happening, you know, among the trainees, between the supervisor and the trainees, it, it, it's not, you know, what are we teaching if we ignore those while we're talking about repairing ruptures with trainees? Um, I think it's complicated when it's a group supervision because we would have to address it in a way that's not leading a trainee to feel singled out or shamed. Um, mm. So this is something my my fellow supervisors and I um, are talking about, like what are the best ways to do this and, and what can we draw from, for example, like the group therapy literature that might be helpful thinking about group processes. And, and this is something we're paying more and more attention to and we've started uh, like now we have a supervisor supervision so that we can bring in tapes of the supervision mm -hmm. and look at ruptures in the in the supervisory alliance and talk about that and now that we are um, recording our supervision meetings then we have the ability to code them and, and we've done a little bit of coding of some meetings for supervisory ruptures so I think there's a lot more we can learn here and and figure out what would be like how far can we go and it and it be helpful for the trainees in terms of exploring a supervisory rupture in a group context mm. it's always interesting all the different levels but also the tapes are so important i'm supervising supervisors and i have them show the tape of the actual therapy mm. and then their supervision of the therapy because you have to keep in mind all those different levels. Mm -hmm. Because often the supervision, if you watch it without watching the original therapy, they're talking about something. And it seems relatively important. But when you watch the tape, go, oh my gosh, there's something profoundly going on in the therapy that's not being discussed in the supervision. I think that's a great point. And the, the, I wish we all had more time because, you know, like, it's, like it takes so much time to do all of this, but like to do it really well. Yeah. I want to see all those pieces. Yeah. So the risk I see in, cause this has gotten so complex is that there may be much of the time spent on the process. What's going on between you and me and somebody saying, I just want to learn. What do I need to say to the patient who says X to me? And I don't know how to respond to that. And we're just spent 40 minutes talking about the rupture in our supervisory relationship mm -hmm. with one member of the group where the others are sitting there going, yeah, this is pretty intense, but I want to be more pragmatic. How do you balance the pragmatic part and the process part. 
That's a good question. I mean, I'm sure not perfectly, right? And, and I'm sure <laughs> important as stuff as gets as missed. That's always the case, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe one thing I try to keep in mind is sometimes when we start talking about the alliance, I notice sometimes people kind of drift towards uh, focusing a lot on the bond. And, yeah. and what we got to keep in mind is the tasks and goals. So even if we're all, you know, warm and fuzzy and, and feeling great in our bond, if we're not actually getting anywhere and doing anything that's kind of helping the patient move towards their goals, then we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to always kind of keep that in mind, like, okay, here's what's going on in the relationship and like, but what's the link to the goals? What are, what's actually happening in the therapy? But yeah, it's hard. There's there's never enough time to mm-hmm. it feels like to you know adequately attend to everything. Yeah, but you've raised a really important point. You have to balance the three aspects of the alliance, the bond, uh, and the task and goals. And I think again, some therapists are going to gravitate towards. Oh, we got to talk about the bond. What's going on in our relationship? What have I done that's difficult for you? When we should be focusing on the tasks. These are important tasks. And you say, I might not have explained the assignment or Mm -hmm. the work to be done in a clear enough way. Or I might not have, and this is something I think about a lot, I might not have explained why doing this is important, how it's related to what we're working on in treatment. So as you say, you can't wait to the last two minutes and say, oh, by the way, I have this really interesting activity for you to do. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could do this? And of course, the most uh, often response of the client is, I'll try, Mm -hmm. right? And you haven't really given enough time to integrate what that is. So this balance between bond and the task goals, I think is important. Yes. I mean, it's the working alliance. So there's got to be some work happening. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well, what important aspects of this have I missed? Because you know, you're you're the expert in this, and I'm trying to understand it because it's clearly important. I mean, I think all of us as therapists understand uh, what you're talking about in our experience. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just still it's it's still a relatively new area of research compared to many others, and so there's mm-hmm. just so many things we don't know yet. Um, so people often ask, you know, like what types of ruptures are more common with this or that kind of patient? We don't really know the answers to that yet. Yeah. Um, what's the natural life course of a rupture, let's say? Like, are they more, are you more likely to see this at early therapy and that later therapy? We mm-hmm. don't know that. There hasn't been enough research looking mm-hmm. at ruptures in every session to answer that question. Um, mm-hmm. When is it best to explore versus kind of watch and wait? With a rupture, we need more research on that too. How much mm-hmm. do we need to uh, modify all these things with different patient populations, therapist populations, context, cultural differences? Mm-hmm. You name it. Mm-hmm. Um, even just, I mean, all like most of my work is just trying to figure out how to measure them. <laughs> like mm-hmm. before we even get to 
than measuring them and having all these things to say about them. We first have to kind of settle on how to measure them. So mm. there's a lot of um, a lot of exciting opportunities for mm. research, a lot that we still don't really know, or we might have a kind of intuitive clinical sense, but we need to do more research to, to see, are we right mm. about that? Mm. Mm -hmm. Is uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about uh, uh, ways to, to assess the ruptures. Um, and I'm thinking back to Styles measuring the alliance. Is that a helpful thing to do, you think, to look at the graph of the alliance over time and say, hey, look, the, the patient didn't want to really say anything in the session, but they rated the bond as pretty low after this session. Mm -hmm. Is that a useful adjunct or should we be concentrating on the markers? Because the markers probably were there. Well, okay, this is tricky for me to answer because my research is all about the markers. So yes. I'm a big fan yeah. of looking at the markers. Yeah. But what, what I will say about um, looking at the alliance, like fluctuations in alliance ratings is that's often a easy thing to do. If, you, if you've got alliance measures in place, to look at the fluctuations doesn't take that much additional work. So I think if you've got that, yes, you should look at it. And it might yield mm -hmm. important things. And it can be a useful way to identify sessions that would be worth going in for a deeper dive, right? Mm -hmm. So so we can identify like a V. Alliance is high, then the next session it's low, the next session it's high again. Those might be good sessions to go in and code and see what's going on. And, and some of my colleagues have done work where they they looked at those and they did find interesting process that that matched the V. But the V's, the that also misses stuff. So it's going to miss if the patient wasn't comfortable reporting the rupture. It's mm. also going to miss if the rupture was repaired within the session. Mm -hmm. We yeah, could have had a yeah. huge blowout and then we repaired yeah. it. We rated the alliance high at the end because mm. it was high by the end. Yeah. And again, as practicing therapists, we don't have time to go back and look at the tapes okay, there's a low alliance session. I want to go back and, and really look at that session. There isn't right. the opportunity. I mean, lots of contexts we don't even have a recording, of course. Now with teletherapy, maybe we have more. But there certainly isn't time for therapists to go back and do this. So the marker part of it, I think, is, is important. There may and be, I mean, with technology, like routine outcome monitoring, you know, you can get a red flag when the alliance is unusually low. That could be valuable. Mm. And and maybe we'll eventually get to the point where, you know, the, the AI could identify the markers in the session as they're happening or right after, mm. and, mm. And, and therapists could use that. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I like to, in these interviews, talk about what you think is the future of technology in our field. So I'm going to ask you, and that is one application because, um, you know, there are Zach Kimmel's listen, mm -hmm. uh, is real-time assessment of some pretty important aspects of therapy like empathy. Uh, uh, so what do you think of digital solutions? Where are we going? I mean, you're going to see this. I'm old, <laughs> but by the time 
uh, you know, you're at your point in your career that I am, things will be very different. So where are we going? So I think, I mean, I, I expect that probably will happen, right? As, as we um, refine and validate observer-based coding measures, increasingly we'll be able to code a bunch of stuff, you know, put it into the computer and, and it can develop a way of then coding a bunch of other things for us. Um, that could be amazing. That could enable us to do uh, huge studies that we don't have the human power to do right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might enable us to to have you know immediate feedback to therapists, um, maybe at least in training settings, maybe even therapists in private practice. That could be amazing. Um, the important thing is, though, I think we have to always, you know, as we're seeing with with you know recent things around AI, garbage in, garbage out. We got to be careful yeah. what we're feeding into it how it could just simply reproduce the biases we bring. I mean, what I think is a rupture marker is informed by my cultural background and what to me seems mm. too much or too little and and it might not work for someone in another context, in another culture. So we need to be, I'd be very wary of um, somebody taking a bunch of my scores, plugging it in and saying, this now defines rupture and repair for everybody everywhere. I'd say that's probably not going to be right. And, and, and I don't want people to think because it came out of a computer, it's objective. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, we need to be cautious with that. And my hope would be that, you know, patients would want their therapist to be looking at them and not looking at the computer screen the whole session. And so there would still be a need for therapists to be able to have the mm-hmm. skills to pick these things up themselves. And yes. then that could be maybe supplemented or assisted or something with computer feedback. Noam Chomsky had a opinion piece. Uh, I forget where it was, Washington Post or New York Times, where he very, as always with him, very insightful uh, um, analysis of AI and where it's going to be helpful and where it's not. So I, I do think we got to be very, very careful, particularly since, you know, therapies are pretty complex skill. But in a a wider uh, uh, context, maybe because there's 10,000, more than 10,000 mental health apps available for your your phone, right? (laughs) Uh, We won't need therapists anymore, that there will be digital solutions to mental health. Are you asking my reaction to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of me is... is, um pained to hear that, right? Because I I love this kind of work and I find it so meaningful to do and so meaningful to train people to do. Um, I have to balance that with, you know, the dissemination and there's not enough resources for the people who need them. So Mm -hmm. yes, a a digital therapist is probably better than no therapist at all. Um, I hope we still leave space for training people and, and disseminating that more training. Yeah. I mean, some of the things we we teach our trainees would be helpful for all human beings mm-hmm. to learn and use, as well as people in, you know, sort of related professions and maybe any mm-hmm. profession where you're interacting with other people. Some of this stuff could be really useful. So I hope we leave space for it and, and space for people to have the kind of training they need to keep thinking of new ideas and kind of pushing us forward. Well, interpersonal relations form the basis of so many activities. I mean, we're a 
we're a social species. And so uh, uh, despite the widespread use of, of uh, computers and AI and everything else, the social relationships are really important. Which brings me to think, you know, it's not just therapists that have to recognize ruptures. This occurs in business meetings. This occurs in manager-employee relations. This occurs everywhere. So any plans for exporting this knowledge to a broader context? I mean, I have... uh... I was worried they're grandiose. So you can tell me what you think. But I had a <laughs> fantasy of, of yeah, like, you know, writing about that and exploring that. Like, how can this mm-hmm. rupture idea be helpful in other relationships and other domains? Um, it seems to me that it, it would be, but I know I'm biased. Yeah. Well, I can see it uh, in terms of organizational consultations because uh, I've been in enough business meetings and events to know uh, ruptures when I see them and what happens to the task orientation. I mean, they're they're working on a task. Mm -hmm. So there's something tangible they want at the end of that meeting, but the rupture has interfered with the task, which is exactly Mm -hmm. analog Mm -hmm. to what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Catherine, this has been fascinating. We're, we're towards the end of our time. Um, and, and personally, I think, you, you know, you, you've taken what we've all known. I mean, uh, wasn't it Borden that talked about tear and repair? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it a little bit differently. It's, it's been there since the beginning. Right. But you've systematized it and developed training around it. And I think that's always important to do. So it's a more systematic approach uh, to uh, what we know from the research. And we've we've always theorized that this idea of, of uh, ruptures in the alliance, uh, both in terms of task and goals, but the bond as well, are critical to what we do and that we have to think about it systematically. So uh, just uh, kudos uh, for the research you're doing and the training you're doing. And just on a personal note, how enjoyable it is to have spent this hour with you. Thank you. It's It's a real honor to speak with you, Bruce. Thanks for listening. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths offers a complete behavioral health, EHR, and practice management software solution, including claims, billing, clinical notes and documents, scheduling, and teletherapy, all for one simple and affordable monthly price. CarePaths EHR is HIPAA compliant and ONC certified, and can also support electronic prescribing for an additional fee. Their latest release, CarePaths Connect, includes automated measurement-based care and the ability to create a digital front door for your practice, as well as a free mobile app designed to increase patient engagement. If you're just starting your practice or are dissatisfied with your current EHR, go to carepaths.com to start your free trial today. To find out more about Bruce Wampold and his work as CarePaths Chief Clinical Officer, visit makingtherapybetter.com.